This is the business of sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Who wants to be the sacrificial lambs that shows up at the first big major sporting event? We're part of something much bigger than sport right now, and the health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. And this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. Today, we have a special guest joining us, Eric Nussbaum. Eric is a writer and former editor at Vice, and he's also the author of Stealing Home, Los Angeles, The Dodgers, and The Lives Caught in Between, a great book. An L.A. native himself, Eric tells the story of the Mexican-American communities uprooted by the construction of Dodger Stadium. Eric, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right, so I am the guilty party here because I read this book and just couldn't get enough of it. I read it cover to cover on vacation and uh, had our guys reach out to Eric. So really glad to have you here. I, I have to say, Eric... I- I started the book, and I sort of thought it was going to be one thing, and I thought it was going to be sort of a small story. It is a big, sprawling story in many ways, a complicated one. You draw out some amazing characters. I guess I would start by asking you, what is the core story here of Stealing Home? Sure. So the core story of Stealing Home, to me, is, I mean, if you want to put it at a very simple, most basic level, it's how Los Angeles got Dodger Stadium. But that's kind of misleading and I think it maybe gives the wrong impression. So really the book is about, it's about a family uh, that immigrates from Mexico to the United States and they end up buying a plot of land in Los Angeles, pretty close to downtown. Uh, And over decades they build a house, have a family, and it's a story about how they kind of are thrown up against the rocks of history. Uh, Their home is slated to be part of a massive public housing project. So their their neighborhood gets ruled a quote-unquote slum, and I mean that in the legal sense, by sort of progressive pro-housing urban renewal politicians in Los Angeles in the 40s. And then before the public housing project can get built, and before they actually leave their home, the Red Scare comes into play, and sort of devious um, private development advocates in L.A. use the Red Scare to end the public housing program, and in that process they ruin a bunch of other lives. And this land is left mostly empty, except for a few families, like this one family, the Adechigas, that I write about. Uh, and it's, it's a story about their, their fight to preserve their home as they're kind of swayed by all these great forces in, in America. This story made me think uh, there was a lady uh, who everybody else gave up their their land except one lady who had her house uh and i forgot exactly where because they wanted to build a a freeway but she wouldn't give up the house so what they wound up doing is building the freeway on top of her around the house and this story made me think of this because this is a fight against people trying to protect their land uh some it works well and sometimes it does not uh, can you take us more about you know, this 
family and the battle that they faced. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the neighborhood they lived in was called Palo Verde, and it was one of three communities that was in L.A. Um, in these hills north of downtown. Um, Palo Verde was the main one. There was also La Loma and Bishop. And so these were sort of, you know, working-class communities, you could say. You know, some of them were pretty rough. Some of them were really nice, you know, with beautiful houses and cars. And they were always a little bit ignored by the city. And when... Um, when the city decided to put public housing, basically to remove these cities, to raise them, and to build a massive public housing project there in the late 40s, the communities resisted. And that resistance was not completely unified, like it never is. Some people were like, well, we'll sell out, we'll give up our homes, and other people said, we're never leaving. Uh, the matriarch, who sounds like the woman you were talking about, and in my book, I'm Stealing Home, uh, Abrana, refused to leave. You know, she had buried a son there. She had raised grandchildren there. It was her home, and she had worked very hard for it. So it becomes this sort of private versus public battle, right? Is it is it fair for the public to say, you're not living right, we're taking your home, so somebody else can live here? Um, and then it becomes a sort of private versus private thing where the land had returned to the city, and the city wanted to make a baseball stadium. And it's not very fair, in my opinion. It's not even really that questionably fair to kick out families to build a ballpark. But that's ultimately what ended up happening. And the battle, I mean, it was really complicated and dense and lots of legal twists and turns. But it sort of traces the city's priorities shifting from the 40s to the 50s. And ultimately, it's a story that reveals a lot of who has power in Los Angeles. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your point of view, the people with power are the people in City Hall or the people who are, you know, funding the campaigns of the people in City Hall. Eric, this is Mike Lynch up in Boston. Congratulations on the book, by the way. Um, I just want to read the first paragraph. It's very brief. Anybody that's considering buying this book is going to run out and buy it when I just read these three or four sentences right here. And here's how it starts. On May 8, 1959, Abrena Arachiga stood in the entryway of her home as Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies broke down her door. This was the end. She watched as strange, silent men loaded her furniture onto waiting trucks. She wailed as deputies carried her adult daughter by the wrists and ankles down the front stairs. Outside, she bent and picked up a rock, feeling the weight of it in her hand. Finally, she sat helpless as a bulldozer plowed into her living room. Now, when I read that, there were, key, there were tears on my keyboard and on my notebook in front of me right here. How did you continue writing this book after that opening paragraph, which just gripped me and, has, and is going to grip every single reader who buys this book? Thank you. Um, you know, it was, this book has meant a lot to me for a lot of years. I think I've been wanting to write it since I was 18. Uh, I, I feel really strongly about this story. And as I was researching it and writing it, and I got to know Abrana's family, you know, her grandchildren, great-grandchildren, uh, cousins, I, I became even more convinced that it was it was just a crucial, vital story and that she was a person who, you know, people should get to know. I think there's a lot of people who get, you know, attention as American heroes, as sort of iconic figures in, in our culture. And there's a lot of people who lived 
lives that are worthy of that who never get never get written about. Um, you know, this is not my story. I was not from this community, but I found it to be so compelling, and I found myself wrapped up in it emotionally and personally. Um, what's crazy is that that you know that scene is sort of the end of the book. It's towards the end. It's well, it's the prologue, but it, the book flashes back, and you start off and you re re arrive at, at that point where sheriff's deputies are, are forcibly evicting her family, and that happened on live television. And I was just so curious about what it was about her and her husband Manuel and their children that made them so willing to fight. You know, a lot of neighbors of theirs sold their homes. A lot of neighbors of theirs sold their homes under duress, but almost none of them were violently evicted. And why why was it that they had that just need to see it through to the end? And even after that day, when they were forcibly evicted from their home, they stayed encamped at the site of their home amongst the rubble. So you get a sense of who these people are. And Eric, you know, what's so interesting, too, and I think for anybody who reads this book, and this was the case for me, is you go in, you know, understanding that ultimately it is going to be about baseball and it's going to be about a team that many of us know, many of us have followed and um you know, many of us have been fortunate to be uh, at Dodger Stadium. I actually went for the first time just a couple summers ago with my sons. And it is, I think you would agree, a pretty magical place in, in many ways. And, and the way it was constructed, you know, and the way that it is built on the land that that you so well describe and that you just described, you know, who was living on it. This is also a story of a team and of a city and sort of how they came together. Uh, tell us about that part of it, because as you pointed out earlier in the conversation, the use of the land sort of takes a turn, and, and, and we'll set that aside for a second because there's another great character um, who's deeply involved, but the move from Brooklyn to Los Angeles is a huge part of this and is a huge part of the story of Los Angeles, too. It is. So I've read a lot of books, probably all of them, about the Dodgers and the move to L.A., and almost all of them are written from the perspective of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, and I understand that. You know, it was a traumatic thing for the Dodgers to leave Brooklyn, and there's a whole literature of people you know, really sad about that. There's the famous jokes about Walter O'Malley, the owner, being you know, worse than Hitler and Stalin. There's the whole sort of genre of Brooklyn Dodgers nostalgia, but I always felt like it was weird that the story never talked about L.A., where they moved, and why they went to L.A., and what the consequences were in my hometown. Um, perhaps I'm a little biased. Uh, so L.A. in the 50s was a huge, booming city at that time already. It was by then the third largest city in the States, after Chicago and New York, and the city had, as it probably still does, a little bit of a chip on its shoulder in terms of how it's portrayed in the East Coast and perceived by the world. And a lot of L.A. leaders really wanted Major League Baseball. They felt, and this was the 50s, right, so baseball was still by far the biggest sport. You know, uh, they felt like if L.A. had a Major League team, it would be a big league city. That was even the language they used. You know, we need to show that we're a big league city as if it wasn't already. Uh, so you had all these civic leaders really, really pushing to get Major League Baseball. And this had started in the 40s and maybe even earlier, but there's this sort of ongoing effort and these, all these failed attempts to recruit, to recruit clubs, you know, 
um, St. Louis Browns, uh, Washington Senators. But there's also a sense that L.A. doesn't want a lousy Washington Senators. They want a great team. So they started in the early 50s as Walter O'Malley in Brooklyn is having problems trying to trying to replace Ebbets Field, whispering in his ear, come to L.A., come to L.A., and it's this sort of courtship that feels very one-sided, like, like it's a shot in the dark, until O'Malley reaches a point where he's realizing that he's not going to sort of outwit Robert Moses, the big power broker yeah. uh, in Brooklyn, and he sort of jumps ship, and, and it all happens slowly and then very fast. I want to go back to something that Mike said earlier, and, we're ta- and, and I read that same passage that Mike brought up uh, uh, earlier in this conversation. And what really rattles my cage is that it shows, for lack of a better term, the racial injustice uh, that had taken place through this. And like you said, Ebbets Field here in New York yeah, people got the one side of Ebbets Field, but nobody was getting the other side of what was happening in Los Angeles and what was happening to these families. Can you expand more on that, and especially now in a time where we have racial strife that's going on today? Sure. So I think it's important to zoom out a little bit more and talk about sort of the the history of these communities. So the communities where Dodger Stadium now sits existed because of redlining and racism in the first place. They were a place where if you were Mexican-American, if you were a person of color, you could buy a house, you could buy land, you could rent. It was a place where you could pretty much live unbothered, um, relatively, in part because the city was going to ignore you. These were parts of L.A. that were really underserved. They did not have public services that they needed. And that was not because they didn't want them. You know, these neighborhoods had to fight at City Hall to get a bus line, you know, into their neighborhood. They had to fight to get paved streets in some places. They had to fight to get streetlights in some places. Um, so it was, it was a part of the city that, even though the houses were fine in Embalo Verde, um, the infrastructure around them was not, and that was because of racism. L.A. was an extremely racist city in the first half of the 20th century, and even today, but then it was, I mean, just really, really <laughs> virulently conservative and racist. Uh, I can't say that enough. So when you have these progressives coming to build public housing, um, especially after World War II, but also a little bit before, they're looking at things, even if they are well-intentioned, from a white sort of white savior perspective. We we see the lack of housing in L.A., they might say, and that we have a solution for it, and that's to build public housing and sort of funnel poor people, people of color, into a certain way to live. And there was a big sense that, you know, great architects and great planners could sort of guide the perfect city life um, with no regard for what the people who were living in those communities who were being evicted really wanted or what they already had. It was a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They, they didn't appreciate the resources that were already in front of them. So, so that was even, you know, people who would have been considered progressive at the time, you know, it, it, was, it was pretty racist. <laughs> and then later on, when you have this fight over the land, it's just, it's, it's, you can go back to the old newspaper articles, you can look at the language that was used by, by members at City Hall, 
there's no way that the Adechika family would have been treated this way if they were white. And there's no way that this would have happened at all if they were white, because their land never would have been taken to build the public housing project. Eric, uh, as Michael just said, uh, that the timing is, is right for this book, uh, certainly with the racial injustice climate in this country today. Um, is there any chance for any reparations, Dodger apology, um, it's city apology, county apology uh, for what happened more than 60 years ago? Um, I like that you mentioned city and county apology, too. I, I, I don't know. I mean, so far, the Dodgers and the city and the county have not proven to be interested in acknowledging what happened. Um, this was definitely not just the Dodgers coming in and kicking out communities. It's important to say that. They were complicit, and they you know, eventually took the land, and I think they inherited a lot of the responsibility when they when they bought that land and built that stadium. But, you know, this was a, an injustice that was decades in the making, possibly centuries. So I think there should be a possibility of, I don't know about reparations, but there should be, there should be at the very least, and this, first of all, it's not my place to say. It's the descendants of those communities. They're the people who have to decide. And there's, there's groups of them who are, I think, having those conversations right now. Uh, there's one group called Buried Under the Blue, um, and one of the founders of that group is the great-granddaughter of Abrana Arechiga. So it's really, it's really on them, and it's up to them. But I would love to see the Dodgers and the city and the county make amends, begin the process of acknowledging what happened. Even just a mere acknowledgement would be a huge step forward. Right now, the Dodgers don't talk about it. The city doesn't talk about it. The county doesn't talk about it, which is crazy, because it's something that happened not that long ago at perhaps the most iconic place in Los Angeles. It is incredible, and and to think about you know what the Dodgers have become in in many ways, and and what an iconic team they are to to think about and and to really understand this history, Eric. I, I do wonder, just sort of on that note, as we think about the Dodgers and sports in in Los Angeles, you know this better than we do. Uh, sports and professional sports, and, and to some extent college sports, but especially professional sports have become so woven into the recent history of the city. You understand sports and cities more holistically than, than most. What do sports ultimately mean? And what do teams like the Dodgers ultimately mean to Los Angeles? Cause this is really a book ultimately about a place in, in many ways. Yeah. I mean, sports mean a lot, you know, I think one of the things the book traces is right. Is how, how meaningful baseball became. And I, go back to Abner Doubleday and the myth of his founding baseball. And we give a lot of meaning to sports. Sports are a collective activity. Sports are a place where we come together. I love sports. Uh, obviously, I, you know, I think that they're extremely powerful. And I also think it's okay to be critical of our sports institutions when they're not reflecting the values we want them to. I don't think we need to be critical only as armchair GMs. I think we can think about the team in a more holistic way, the same way we are critical of our politicians. Um, we, can, we can love something like sports and also be willing to say, that's not right, or let's reflect on this a little bit at the very least. Let's think about what we're supporting here. The Dodgers in L.A., the Lakers in L.A., I mean, these, these are just huge fundamental parts of the city. You know, they're... They're institutions that, that bring people together. They're institutions that, that, in my opinion, do a lot for the city. But I, I think that 
also gives them great responsibility and an obligation to be, you know, good corporate citizens. I'm an old geezer newsman who got his start back in Detroit. And I bring that up because there was a story out of Detroit, and I covered it in Hamtramck, which is an enclave of Detroit, where they were going to build an auto plant with those two words, eminent domain. And they were going to take away some houses to build this plant. And I remember thinking to myself, I was angry then. These poor people had their house, and they were all set, and they thought life was good. And then, whap, it's taken away. And it's just like this family. Today, if you're going to build a new stadium, uh, there's no way in West Hell this would happen. Because back then, uh, you didn't have social media and yes, you, you had television and, and you had newspapers coverage, but you didn't have the, the social media and the immediacy that you have today. Uh, take us through that, because uh, there's no way in the world this would happen today. You know, this was such a specific situation, right, where we had a community get pretty much raised to make way for public housing. And I didn't talk about that too much, so there the book also centers around a, a public housing advocate named Frank Wilkinson. Mm. And Frank was the number two guy in the L.A. Housing Authority. He was an idealist, and he was also a member of the Communist Party. And he was outed as such at a at an eminent domain hearing in 1952. Um, and that was really what sort of killed the project and where the kind of tailspin began. And this land that had been confiscated by the city with eminent domain to build a a public good, you know, arguably, but certainly publicly owned good, and this housing project um, sort of sat in limbo after after Frank was as a communist and the project was killed. And when the city sold it to Walter O'Malley, and it was a pretty plum deal for O'Malley, there was a huge outcry saying, "Wait a minute, you can't take land with eminent domain." and then give it to a private enterprise. It was legally questionable, and it was popularly uh, questionable, too. People people weren't happy about it, even Dodger fans in L.A., to the point where it almost went to the U.S. Supreme Court and to the point where the city had to vote on it. And in 1958, right after the Dodgers came to town, uh, despite all the resources that baseball had, all the popularity of baseball, it was a very close election. It was 52% to 48% for the deal to go forward. So there was a possibility even then that Dodger Stadium wouldn't have happened because of the unpopularity of eminent domain, uh, even in an era without social media, even in an era when, you know, the people who were mostly being affected were poor people of color. Eric, um, if, I, if I'm correct, the Arachegas family house, many other houses, and even an elementary school are buried underneath parking lots in Dodger Stadium. And, and I'm thinking, I've been there many, many times. I was there for the World Series with the Red Sox a couple of years ago. Now I'm thinking back, I feel like I was being disrespectful, almost walking across someone's grave. Is this true, that, 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 that their home and an elementary school is under the parking lot? I don't think there's any homes under the parking lot, um, but the elementary school is certainly there. Uh, they took off the roof under center field where the school was and filled it up in dirt. It's pretty pretty remarkable. There, there are a lot of people who would say that that 
Dodger Stadium is sort of great for their communities. There's no question. You know, and that's not something that everybody agrees on. Some some of the members of those families have become Dodger fans over the years, and they've made their peace with the team. Um, it's, there's not one answer, uh, but there's certainly other people who wouldn't want to hear the word Dodgers, and there's people who wouldn't want to go to the ballpark or go near it, and there's people who consider the whole thing, you know, an insult to their families and to their communities. Well, congratulations on the book. It is really a terrific read and highly recommended. It is, as we have discussed, uh, amazingly timely as well because it really delves into the complicated issues. And, and Eric, I loved what you said about the way we view our sports teams because obviously in this entire series of conversations that we have on this show, we talk a lot about sports and we try and do move past the the armchair GMing and get into some of the economic and, and, uh, and issues that delve into to the social uh and certainly we've been doing that a lot more over the past few months so congratulations again the book pick it up it's called stealing home los angeles the dodgers and the lives caught in between this was a bit of an emotional one here for this bloomberg business of sports podcast i'm michael barr along with mike lynch and jason kelly and we're here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday exploring the world of money and sports. Join us again at the end of the week. We're going to speak with Washington football team president Jason Wright. He's a former NFL player, former partner at McKenzie & Company. He's the league's first black team president. He's got a big job. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online wherever you get your podcasts. 